0: In our final week of now six weeks on the prodigal son, the thing that we're going to look at today is an idea in this parable that also permeates the whole of Scripture. I would venture to say that to go back 2,000 years and understand the biblical idea of sonship for many of us, might be something we think that we've grown out of. Haven't we lost that patriarchal machismo idea of faith? And if we were to do that, we'd miss out on one of the most important metaphors of what it means for all of us, every single person in this room, when it comes to what grace has provided. It's the idea of sonship. We see it in the parable we've been looking at over these weeks. There's the father who, when his son returns to him, says, my son, was dead. Now, he wasn't dead physically, but sonship is something other than just a physical reality. Did the younger son ever stop being physically the descendant of the father? Well, no. So, what did the father mean when he said, my son was dead, if in fact he wasn't ever dead? And then there's the son who twice uses this phrase, I am not worthy to be called your son. Those two statements help us understand that there is something about sonship in the culture of ancient times, and in fact still in many parts of the world today, that is very different than we view family structure. So the question we need to ask is, what does sonship mean? And I believe that we must understand it if we're to capture some of the most important information about what Jesus has done for us. So let's turn one last time to Luke chapter 15. And because we've been in it and read it so often, I'm just going to pick a section of it beginning at verse 17. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on the finger, and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and killed it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. So, I'm going to invite all of you, women and men alike, to entertain that there is something very precious to consider when we look at this tradition. And in fact, by the time we're done today, you will hopefully have a little more insight into what it means that Jesus is referred to as the Son of God. It's all part of the same metaphor. We're going to look at it in four ways. We're going to look at sonship in the culture of the Bible. We're going to look at what that means to us, that we are the sons of God. Then thirdly, we're going to look at the implications of that within the spiritual community, the church. And then finally, we're going to look at Jesus as the true elder brother, the firstborn. Sonship in that ancient culture was a status. I would dare say that it was a job description, First of all, the son carried on the family name. The name of the family was like the franchise. <laughs> it meant everything. The reputation, the legacy, all of these things were summarized by the name. But secondly, the son was charged with carrying on the family business. You see, we don't quite understand how critical the family was in every circle of life. Family was everything, primary unit of society, government, and economy. You couldn't survive in ancient culture, and still today in many parts of the world that are still set up in a patriarchal format. You cannot survive if you are not a part of a strong and intact family. We look at how the inheritance worked, and we see inequity. The eldest son gets the chief portion the other sons get some, a smaller portion, and the daughters get none. And we say, well, well, that's not fair. I'll give you that. <laughs> From our perspective, it certainly isn't fair. But the older son wasn't given the chief portion of the wealth just to do with what he wished. To be given the chief portion of the wealth is to be handed over the responsibility to keep the family going, see? Wealth in the ancient world was not about what you had in the bank. Where your wealth was was in the land and the animals. It was all about having the ability to produce. The point here in that culture, and it's not right or wrong, it's just what it was, and we need to understand it in order to understand the metaphor. If the chief portion of the land and the and the production resources were put in the hands of a new head of the household, then everybody in that household was going to be fine. They all shared in it as part of that household. Those that would marry out the women who would marry out into other households would become part of that household. Everybody would be cared for because the wealth was preserved and so you see. Getting the chief inheritance wasn't so much intended to be privilege as it was responsibility. Especially when we look at sonship, firstborn, we have to recognize it was an office. It was a job and a responsibility. To be a son was a very big deal. And that's why you can know how shocking it was when the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 3 used sonship in a radical new way. And I'm going to invite you to turn there with me, Galatians chapter 3. We're going to begin reading at verse 26, and then read the first several verses of the next chapter, chapter 4. Now, dependent on what translation you have, there's an important word that may be missing in what I'm about to read, the actual Greek word, son. Son. You see, nowadays it's become a trend to take out the cultural inequities in Scripture so they're less offensive. But we have to understand, that's not really translation, that's paraphrase. So you don't base theology on paraphrasing. You need to say what it says. You would miss the power of what we're about to read because it's the fact that Paul uses the very term son that makes this such a powerful phrase. Let me read it, beginning at verse 26. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. There is now neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. When the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Who receives the full rights of sons? Everyone. Let's read on. Because you are all sons, God sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba. And what's that really mean? Daddy, so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and since you are a son, what's that last phrase? God has made you also an heir. This is powerful. Now, I fully respect the difficulty that sometimes women in the church come up against when they read these passages and hear what appears to them to be something that they wish we had outgrown. Why do we have to use the phrase son? Isn't that Chauvinist, aren't we bigger than that now? You see, you have to understand we're using it the way Paul used it because it's subversive. So, you see what we miss? Women, you need to not chafe under the idea of being God's son any more than men need to get squirrely at the idea of being the bride of Christ. (laughs) (laughs) Or, or all of us offended at being called stupid sheep you see every metaphor in the bible matters we need every one of them because they're all designed to teach us something about grace and what god has made possible for us see don't mess with the word you'll surely lose something powerful that god wants to teach you let the word of god speak All right, so with that in mind, let's look at what it means to us then that we are all God's son, that we all stand equally before God as heirs. What does that mean? I want to just quickly list four things. The first thing that it means for us is deep security. To be a son is to be something very different than a worker or a slave. Paul says, once you were slaves, you were under obligation to God, We are now sons, and there is a security in that that we often miss. Many of us today, we're like the younger son, so focused on our failures that perpetually our our storyline is, I'm not worthy. (laughs) I'm not worthy to be called your son. We're living there. And what what the younger son was saying is, let me earn my way. We're just like the younger son. We don't understand just how secure we are as sons of God. Instead, we still think we're workers, trying to prove ourselves. Let's contrast the two. A hired man has no real rights in the family. His arrangement is conditional. But a son has full rights in the family, and his relationship is unconditional. Are are you still trying to be a hired man in order to make God think you're worthy? Dr. Lloyd-Jones, who was a uh, minister many years ago in Great Britain, had this diagnostic question he would frequently ask people that he was counseling in his office, and the question was this, right now at this moment, are you a Christian? And if the person answered something along the line of, well, I'm trying, he said, I knew right there that that person did not really understand what it meant to be a Christian. They were still trying to be a hired man. See, we've become the sons of God. That's a status. That's a birth. It's one of the reasons why Jesus refers to our coming to faith as being born again because now we are the children of God, and that can't change. There's a deep security. The second thing that there is is intimate access. In the passage we just read, we're allowed to call the father Abba, this makes Christianity the most unique thing in the world because every other religion sets up God as either this mystical impersonal or he is sovereign like a king and we are his subjects. Christianity alone says, no, there's a family that God, the one who made everything, allows us not just to call him father but to call him daddy, daddy. Children have access to parents in a way that even husbands and wives don't. I mean, think about this. Let's say, men, your wife is perfectly fine. She has no reason to do this. But in the middle of the night, she wakes you up out of a deep sleep. Honey, 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 I need a glass of water. Would you go get me a glass of water? What are you really tempted to say? Yeah, Get it yourself. But if your child comes in the middle of the night and has no need, except that they're thirsty, I need some water, what would you do? Get up. Why? Because they're your child. Well, the good fathers here would do that. And the good mothers. You see, being a child gives you access to the Father in a way that nothing else does. Think about this. Prayer is our way, our ability to access that intimate presence and love of God. It's why when Jesus taught us to pray, and those of you that were part of the study we did last spring know that prayer begins with what? Our Father. Prayer is first and foremost relationship. Love that. So, being sons of God gives us deep security. It gives us intimate access. The third thing it does is it gives us future hope. We are heirs with God. It's a powerful thought. I want to take you to another passage just quickly, Romans chapter 8, where uh, Paul uses the same imagery of God being our Father and us being heirs. We're going to start reading at verse um, 15. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. That's touching on that security. Instead, we have received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Now, read on, and we catch a glimpse of what it is that we are heirs to. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation is subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of who? The children of God. If sonship is about inheriting not just the family, prosperity, but the family business. Think about this. What is the business God's in? Recreation. And the day will come when it will all be done. And we will share in it. It's just such a a powerful thought. And and, and you have to ask yourself, if I understood how that windfall (laughs) will be mine for eternity, that the day will come when I inherit all of that How would that change how we act right now? What would it look like if you knew that you had that great inheritance coming just around the corner? I think a lot of things wouldn't matter the way they do right now. You wake up one morning and the stock market's down a thousand points. Oh, well. When you know you have that much available to you, you're more secure. So, this is what we have in Christ. Deep security, we have intimate access, and we have future hope. Years ago when Eleonora was, uh, I don't know how old she was, three or four, but I was working in my office, and she walks up to me, and I'm just not really paying that much attention to what she's saying, and she says, Dad, I said, yeah, honey, what is it? And she said, can I have $2 million? She just looked at me like no big deal, like I was going to pull it out of my pocket can I have $2 million, Dad? I said, well, why do you need $2 million? She said, well, Anna's got a really nice coloring book, and I asked her if I could have one of the pages, and she said, not for a million dollars. So can I have $2 million, Dad? <laughs> First of all, great math for a little kid. I see in all three of these qualities. There's this deep sense of security in me as her father to, to care for her. There is this sense of intimate access. She could just come up at any time, get my attention, ask me this question, and there was this great sense of future hope. That's the guy who I know is going to provide my needs. And you know, I did. I did take care of her. No, I didn't give her $2 million. I bought her her own coloring book. Sometimes we don't understand exactly how it is God's going to meet our need, but when we have confidence in the inheritance that's ours as his children, doesn't matter. We know it's going to happen. Let's look just for a few minutes at what it would mean in the body of Christ if we understood sonship to the point where we really embraced and lived as a family, as God's children. First of all, unconditional commitment. You can pick your friends, but you can't pick your family, right? You don't get to pick who your brothers and sisters are. You just have them. But you still have this bond, don't you? You have a bond from common upbringing, from uh, the damage of being raised by the same sets of parents. You know, we have this bond uh, with family, even though we don't get to choose family. But, but here's the thing. We have a little sign in, in our bathroom, and I can't, don't remember the exact quote, but it's something along the line that life begins and ends with family, and that's true. Friendships will change. Very few friendships are lifelong. But family, whether you like it or not, whether you avoid them, whether you live on opposite sides of the country, they're family for life. And your quality of relationship with them does affect your life. You, you think that just ignoring them will somehow allow you to move on, but you don't. You carry all that baggage with you. You see, the fact is, when we know that we are family, we know we really should and just have to figure out how to make it work, how to get along. That's true in the body of Christ. You shouldn't have social clubs and cliques inside the body of Christ. Well, I'm just going to be with these brothers and sisters, and these brothers and sisters don't fit my demographic, don't fit my idea of what's good or friendly. I don't particularly like them. It's tough. <laughs> They're God's children with you. They are inheritors with you in all that God has. They are fellow participants of grace. Make it work. That's the first thing, unconditional commitment. A second thing is transparency. When you grow up with people, man, you cannot pretend with them. Am I right? When you're family, you can't hide from who you are, and you still have to offer grace. In the body of Christ, there's no hiding We are who we are. We're honest about our faults, and we administer grace to one another. Transparency. A third area is shared resources. That's the thing about family is that we take care of each other. That was certainly the idea of Scripture, as we've learned today. In Acts chapter 2 and in the early writings of even those who hated Christians— was this reality that set them apart so dramatically that people in the body of Christ never went without needs being met, that people shared their wealth. We counted what we have not as ours, but as God's, and if God's, then belonging to the family. So we take care of each other. Now, yes, I'm I'm talking about your resources and for some of you, you're going, well, there he goes again. He's talking about my stuff. And maybe it's about time you got this straight. None of it's your stuff. It's God's stuff. Jesus talked about that stuff more than he talked about grace or, or love. Why? Because it's his. We're just the sons who get to take it and use it for the good of the family. We're going to come across it in the Bible over and over and over again. And if you constantly get ruffled every time we talk about money and you, and you sit there and you say, well, wait a minute, isn't my money between me and God? The answer is no, it's not. First of all, it's not your money. And second, it's not just between you and God. We're family. I'm just saying, if you can't get past that, then maybe you need to ask yourself what you're worshiping because you can't worship God and your stuff. You just can't. Either you've got confidence in the God that gives it, you know, there's more where that comes from, and it's available for God to use, or it's a stronghold in your life. So, we have to think about that. What we have is available for each other. We're not talking communism. We're talking community. That's the biblical idea. How are we doing it? that? How are we at spontaneously reaching out and caring for each other? Not just with our checkbook. I'm not just talking about that. But every available way we have to show our love and care for one another. And then the fourth thing that will happen if we really are a body of, of family, brothers and sisters, is that we will have life impact on one another. Think about this. Ephesians 4 is really the only picture in the Bible of how the church ought to function. It's very organic. It's about the body of Christ. But it also is about family because it talks about growing up, growing up together in God's family, growing up to be just like Jesus. And it says one of the ways, one of the only ways we can do that is when we all learn to speak truth in love to one another, encourage each other. In the body of Christ, just like in a family, we get to, Speak openly with each other and bring impact into each other's lives. Honesty that is full of hope and grace and love that encourages us to become everything that God aspires for us in Christ, to grow up in everything who is the head, even Jesus Christ. Well, I think that's what the metaphor of sonship is designed for us to understand. Let me just mention this one thing. It's no mistake that in Colossians chapter 1, when Paul refers to who Jesus is twice, he calls him firstborn. He is the firstborn over creation, and he's the firstborn over the church, the new creation. People have often confused that, like we confuse sonship in general in the Bible, to mean, you see, Jesus wasn't always existing. He had to come into existence in order to be the firstborn. But now we know better. Firstborn is a position. It's a job. It's a status. Jesus is our true, listen to this, he's our true elder brother. God has passed on to him because of his sacrifice of everything for us. God has passed on to him the full wealth. The Father has passed on to him the full wealth and honor. And then he turns and says, everything's okay, because you are my brothers. You are my sisters. The wealth of our Father is in my hands, and so are you. I love that thought. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for uh, the truth in your Word. I I pray that we would recognize what it means to be family. I'm sure as... um, as we think about that and think about our own families, we, we get a real mixed bag of emotions. We think about the inadequacies, the hurts, the pains, and we also, many of us, think about great high moments and, and memories that we'll treasure forever. But Father, your family is meant to be the perfect family, not because we are perfect, but because your love is perfect, because the work of the cross was complete and grace rules. Father, I pray that we would experience what it means to be a true family of blood-bought brothers and sisters, joint heirs with Christ in the fullness of creation itself and all that grace makes possible. In Jesus' name, amen.